Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. Today we have Susanna Zurewski, who is an author and speaks eight languages. Susanna also has a hidden disability of seeing the world in 2D. Susanna, can you tell us about it? Yes. Uh, I was born in the former Union and I came to the United States when I was three years old. And I received my first surgery when I was three years old to straighten my eyes. And uh, that left me with a lazy eye. And so um, I had to wear these really thick glasses. And when I took off my glasses or contacts when I was a teenager, I was very embarrassed because I had a lazy eye. And I asked to get a second surgery to cosmetically straighten my eyes. And throughout all that time, uh, from you know when I was in the United States and I had the surgery and I went to the and I went to various binocular vision specialists, nobody ever told me that I couldn't see in 3D. Nobody ever told me what it meant to have a binocular vision disorder. I didn't know that I would have trouble driving, that I would have trouble playing sports, that I would have trouble walking downstairs, doing anything that related to death perception. No one ever told me. And uh, before, while I was preparing for my surgery when I was 17, the uh, woman who was doing these vision therapy exercises with me, I think they were called orthoptics, or I think that's what it was called. Uh, she had me do some exercises. I think they're called pencil push-ups, or, or I would have to um, my finger against a wall and see if it doubled. I can't remember exactly what it was. But I remember saying to her that as I was doing the the exercises, something changed in my vision. And that was that before when I woke up in the mornings, I would look around my room and I thought I could magically move objects around. And I think it was after my second surgery that I could no longer do this magic with my with my eyes. And I said to her, or maybe I said it to the uh, ophthalmologist, I said, wow, I used to think I had a magical power that I could move objects around. And they'd said, well, no, you didn't have a magical power. The issue is, is that your eyes were in different, were looking in different directions because one of your eyes was diverted. And when you switched from eye to eye, you saw objects in different places. And as a child, I interpreted that to mean that I had this magic power that I could move things around with my eyes. And that was the only time that anyone ever told me that there was something different in the way I saw because my eyes were displaced. But after that second surgery, I thought that I could see like everybody else because my eyes were straight. And then I found out when I was 29 by reading an article by Dr. Oliver Sacks, the British neurologist, about Stereo Sue, about Susan Berry, who developed 3D vision in her late 40s by doing therapy, that people like me, who were cross-eyed, had strabismus and amblyopia, lazy eye, had trouble with uh, three-dimensional vision. So what did you do? And I read her twice. And it moved me so much. I was crying when I was reading the book because I so identified with her story of feeling like an outcast or maybe not an outcast, but feeling like I didn't belong when I was a child because of my, my funny looking eyes and getting weird looks from people. And she gave a very scientific explanation of the changes in her brain and her eyes as a result of doing vision therapy because she um, is a neuroscientist and she... Um, could understand, explain what was actually happening in the brain you know, as, as she developed a better vision. 
And I wanted to do vision therapy, but it wasn't covered by my health insurance. I live in the United States. And I decided in 2010 to pursue vision therapy, and I had to pay for it out of pocket, which was very expensive. Very soon after starting vision therapy with a behavioral optometrist trained in binocular vision disorders, I started to see changes. The first thing were that I was start, started seeing double, and that was scary. And especially, it was especially alarming when I was driving. So I told the doctor, I said, what am I supposed to do? I'm seeing in double and I'm driving. And he said, you just have to close one eye. And so I would just close one eye when I was driving sometimes. And the reason this was happening was that I had grown up not using both eyes at the same time. So I actually have good vision in both eyes, um, as long as I'm wearing correct. And I don't realize that I alternate very quickly from right to left, right to left. And I, um, in order for the brain, this is how the doctor explained it to me, in order for the brain to start using both eyes at the same time, an unfortunate side effect is the brain will give a double image. Because for so many years, my brain was actually suppressing one eye while showing me the from the other eye, that the, the side effect was that I would see in double. I also immediately, not immediately, but fairly soon after starting vision therapy, I started to see more details. Like I would literally stare at an orange peel because I could suddenly see the indentations better in the orange peel. Or I'd stare at like na- restaurant napkins and be amazed at how much detail there was in the napkin. And I remember telling this to people, and one person said, wow, you sound like you're on LSD, you know, psychedelic drug. And I said, I'm not on drugs. But this is the kind of stuff that people who are on drugs find fascinating, uh, you know, orange peels and, and napkins. And what I really struggled with was explaining this to the people around me, you know, besides the optometrist, because most of the people in my life had no idea what it was like to see in two dimensions had no idea what it was like to change your change one's brain as an adult and didn't understand all the side effects that I had. I was very tired. I start mixing up languages. So I do, you know, I speak eight languages and I, uh, Russian is my first language. And sometimes I would speak in English with like the syntax of, or I would mix up words. It was, it was terrible. Uh, I would sleep sometimes 10 or 11 hours a night because my brain was suddenly to using both eyes for, you know, years. Um, something I should mention, in, in case your listeners aren't, aren't familiar with, is that not seeing 3D is a huge deal. And many doctors, optometrists, uh, or ophthalmologists will deny that not seeing and not having binoculars. They'll say, oh, well, you just make up for it because you can see shadows and you interpret depth in another way. I know a significant amount of people who have uh, three, binocular vision problems who don't drive or who only drive during the day. Um, or who, you know, can only drive on surface streets that take uh, freeways uh, because they are so afraid of not interpreting the distance. And it's, it's hard forging traffic on the freeway. My, my heart starts to beat much faster. In, I have trouble walking down the stairs. I have to hold on to the railing, you know, like an old grandma. Um, sports in school, I was a disaster. And um, I'm not super athletic anyway, but... Anything that required observe, uh, knowing the distance of something. And you can't, how can you play soccer, throw a basketball, catch a baseball, do anything related to a ball if you can't perceive the distance? You're, you're going to fail. You're set up to fail. Um, there, there's a, um, a U.S. 
neurobiologist at Harvard, Dr. Margaret Livingston, who pointed out that there, I think it was Babe Ruth, pointed out that this um, American baseball player had binocular problems, but he was a spectacular baseball player. It's possible that somebody develops a very finite ability to do a certain skill, even though they have a disability. But just because one person has become exceptional doesn't mean that this condition is not a disability for everybody else who has it. You know, if you think about um, Stephen Hawking, I can't remember. Did he have ALS? Was his um, his illness? You know, despite the fact that he had this this debilitating disability, he was still a brilliant scientist and writer. But he's very much an exception. And I find that sometimes doctors or researchers like to highlight one person who's just so exceptional and saying, well, everyone else, if you have the disability, you could be like that person. That person probably has other characteristics about them that make them able to be so exceptional. And it doesn't mean that the rest of the population who has it, maybe 99% of the population, can't, uh, can, can achieve the same thing. And so the fact that I, you know, I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and I went to various binocular vision specialists and the fact that none of them, absolutely none of them, ever told me the impact of my condition is, is very telling because it's like I'm living in the middle of nowhere and I had no doctors to go to. These specialists wouldn't admit to me what was going on. So either they don't know the impact of what it's like not being able to use your both eyes at the same time or they don't care or they don't know or they don't speak enough to their patients to understand how the patients are impacted by this condition. And, you know, some people with binocular vision problems have trouble reading. And then if they have trouble reading, um, they take a vision test in school. At least in, in California, the school vision tests do not test for binocular vision conditions. So you can have, you can pass a reading test by just reading letters, you know, board, but it doesn't mean you can read. It doesn't mean you can understand what, what all the letters are when they form a word or what the words mean when they're in a sentence. And, and, so students could be misdiagnosed as having attention deficit disorder or being, or they're sent to remedial classes like Susan Berry was because they, they have trouble reading. But it's not that the kid is stupid or that the kid um, has attention deficit disorder necessarily. It's because their eyes are working together. So the misinformation and the fact that, I'm sorry, there's a car with a very loud alarm right now on my street. The fact that so many of these professionals ignore reality of binocular vision problems is almost to the point of being criminal. I mean, I, I think some of them may, may have to be sued for malpractice until they understand that they can't operate in this way. Uh-huh. For me, it was surprising that you found the information in the UK with uh, Dr. Oliver Zacks, as in the UK, I mean, the information about vision therapy is quite lacking. Actually, he's, he was in the United States. He, he, grew, um, he practiced in the United States. And he, was publi- he published that article in the New Yorker magazine. So it wasn't in the... He happens to be from the UK, but it was in the US. Yeah. Because all my information that I gathered up through the years was in the US through the internet. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> it was hard to find people who, who could help my kids with vision therapy here. You know, there was someone I was in touch with because I started a blog when I went on my start of my journey nine years ago called One-Eyed Princess. And then from that blog, I published my book, One-Eyed Princess, about my vision therapy journal. There were some people who wrote to me from the UK who said, 
that they could do vision therapy, but they had a very limited amount of sessions that were available per year, I, th- I think. Uh, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't understand how the National Health Service works in the UK, so I don't know. It's all private. I mean, oh. vision therapy, not through the NHS. So, <laughs> it's, so it's very expensive then yes, for families. Yes, very. <laughs> and I also wanted to ask about your ability to learn so many languages when actually your vision isn't that good and probably impacted on it. You know, that's a, that's a good question. So I'm lucky because... Even though sometimes when I was reading as a kid, I would see words move on the page, it didn't impact my reading uh, at all. I mean, besides, you know, a few times when, you know, I saw those things moving on the page. So I was able to read. I don't like to read things in small, small text size. So when I'm reading on the computer, you know, I usually increase the text size. When I buy books, I can't, I can't buy books who so have small text size. You know, forget it. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, but I'm very much an oral learner an audio learner, which I think could be quite common for people who have vision disorders um, just out of a evolutionary reason, you know, because we have to somehow fend for ourselves. So we, some of us may be more audio learners. And um, so I grew up speaking Russian at home and then obviously English once I came to the United States. And then I grew up in California and I heard a lot of Spanish around me. So um, I learned, I started learning French when I was 11, then Spanish when I was 15 or 16. And then in college, I learned Italian. And then after college, I taught myself Portuguese. And then I lived in Bosnia after the war. And because Bosnian is a Slavic language, I was able to pick it up quite quickly. Um, and then I also learned Ladino, which is uh, Judeo-Spanish. It's an older form of Spanish spoken by the Jews who were expelled from Spain during the Inquisition in the 15th century. But that's very, it's, it's very similar to Spanish, so it wasn't difficult to learn. So I, I learned a lot through music, actually, by listening to songs and the languages that I was learning, but also listening to the musicality of the languages, picking up on um, the rhythm of the language, the melody, how long people make pauses, and so on and so forth. And from my experience from the people I've spoken to who have binocular vision problems, I'm very much in the minority. It's not as though like everybody, you know, who has a binocular vision problem is super good at languages or super good at music. I also happen to like music. And as a child, I played two instruments. So I think again, this was my natural, you know, inclination to music uh, or my natural talents towards music or not, maybe not even talents. The fact that I was, Studying music as a child helped me later on to learn languages. And this gets actually, this gets back to my earlier point about how sometimes we hear, you know, researchers or doctors say, well, look at this person who has this condition and they're so exceptional. You know, you can be like that. My thing isn't typical. You know, um, there are blind musicians like Stevie Wonder, right? But the majority of blind people are not musicians and the majority of musicians are not blind. So, you can't say that, oh, well, just because, you know, one of your senses isn't good, you're just going to be super spectacular in the other one. It's, it doesn't work like that for everybody. And how do you learn language from music? So 
That's a good point. That, that's a good question because that also came up as a result of my getting interested in Oliver Sacks. So when I read his article in 2006 in The New Yorker, I became more interested in his work. I had already watched the movie Awakenings uh, uh, based on his book Awakenings. The movie was with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. And a few years later, I think in 2008 or 2009, or maybe it was two, I think it was around then, he published a book called Musicophilia about the way music impacts the brain. And as a neurologist, he, he saw that he had patients who after a stroke might not have been able to speak, but were able to sing or play music. And he was very intrigued. You know, how is it somebody who was, who was able to speak their whole life suddenly couldn't speak, but could sing a song or could, could sit down at the piano and play, play a tune. And his research showed that music impacts the brain more than language does. So if you're listening to a song, more parts of your brain are going to be lit up than if you're just speaking or, um, or, or reading or um, you know, interacting with language. And this has been shown in fMRI uh, scans. And this got me thinking, okay, maybe the way that I learn language has something to do with music. So I, of course, have to read a grammar book like everybody else and, you know, understand the structure of the language, understand how to conjugate verbs, understand how sentence structure works. But the way I remember some of the grammar and some of the vocabulary is through song. So, so the words, like if I were just to read the words in a vocabulary list, fewer parts of my brain are going to be lit up. But if I hear those words in a song, and if I sing them, then more parts of my brain are activated. If more parts of my brain are activated, it's easier to remember and recall that information. And I've been listening to music ever since I was a child, and I also listened to music in Spanish growing up in California, even before I formally studied Spanish. And even now, even though I speak fluent Spanish, I, I've lived in Argentina and I worked in Mexico, sometimes when I'm searching for a word, I'll actually remember the verse from a song. And I almost have to like sing the verse in my head or, or actually sing it. And then I remember the word and then I can say it in a sentence. Uh, and also music helps me with songs, help me with the accent in the language because I, I'm learning the correct pronunciation from an, a native speaker. So when you get a song stuck in your head and what we call an earworm, usually, you know, let's say it's Frank Sinatra singing New York, New York. Most likely, if you get that song, New York, New York, stuck in your head, you're going to hear Frank Sinatra's voice and his pronunciation and not your pronunciation. And so when you get those songs memorized, you know, in your head, you're also learning the correct pronunciation of the words from a native speaker. So that helps with long-term pronunciation and retention of, of vocabulary. So I wrote a book about this, too. It's called Language is Music, and that book has been translated into Russian, Spanish, and Portuguese. Yes, and uh, I i mean, I love speaking different languages. I like to learn other languages, and I, I love the ability to be able to communicate with people. And I'd like to ask, because most of my listeners are people who have sensory processing disorder or some something connected to the senses, yeah. What advice can you give about about learning through music? So there have been teachers and professors of various fields who have 
put information to music. So I wouldn't know how to use music unless there was something that the child would have to needs to remember and has trouble remembering. Then you could put that that information to a song uh, for the child to remember it. You know, like for example, in English we have the alphabet song A B C D E F G. In Russian there is no alphabet song. So even though Russian is my first language and I can read and write in Russian, I don't know the order of the alphabet. And so when I have to look up a word in the Russian dictionary, I don't know how to find it because I, I don't know which letter goes after which. And so I have to go to the first page of the dictionary where usually there's a an alphabet. And I have to go letter by letter to find the word. And it, I mean, it seems ridiculous that I'm a grown woman and I don't know the alphabet, but I do know the alphabet. I don't know the order of the alphabet. But in English, we have the song, a, you know, the, the alphabet song, which helps. So I don't know how that could help somebody with sensory processing disorder. But for anybody who has to remember certain types of information, whether it's um, the periodic table of elements in chemistry or something in physics or historical facts, uh, putting that information to a song is going to make it much easier for the person to recall. Uh-huh. Very interesting. For example, when my son didn't understand, you know, how to count. So yeah. we combined movement and, you know, by combining our body-mind connection, that what worked because sitting with yeah. him and explaining, he wouldn't get it. And only by movement, he understood all kinds of concepts. You know, that reminds me of something that somebody who worked in Montessori education taught me about teaching through the body. So that, that makes sense that, that, that you teach counting through using movement in the body. Exactly. And Susanna, how can people find your websites and your books? Sure. So uh, my name is Susanna, S-U-S-A-N-N-A. The last name is Z-A-R-A-Y-S-K-Y. And my website is createyourworldbook.com. But I have a very unique first and surname combination. So if you just write Susanna Zareisky or Susanna Polyglot Strabismus, you know, in a Google search, I'm sure there are no other strabismic polyglots named Susanna who, you know, have a lot of videos on YouTube. And by the way, um, I have a series of six videos on YouTube in about binocular vision problems, and I have them in English, Russian, French, Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. It's the same information, but in six different languages. And I've actually received quite a few people writing to me, especially in Russian, because they can't find any information on binocular vision disorders in Russian. And um, some of them have even asked me to recommend a doctor for them in Russia. And I found an optometrist in New York who speaks Russian, who has worked with patients in Russia through Skype. Um, but, you know, when people ask me, can you find me an optometrist in Barcelona? I, you know, I, I have no idea who to send them to. Aha, uh-huh. so the the website, you know, of the behavioral optometrist. I think it's C O V D dot org. Yes. Yes, and I often send people there because, you know, those are people who are accredited and, you know, have all the training. Um but it there are times that people write to me from countries where there are no accredited uh optometrists who do vision therapy. And at that point I say, you know, you have to find somebody in another country. Um, hopefully nearby, maybe go there, I don't know, once or twice a year if you can. 
Um, or sometimes you have to work through Skype if, if, if it's possible. Um, there are also people who do um, some vision therapy through video games using uh, virtual reality. Uh, there's a company called Seeing, is it Seeing Vividly? Um, Vivid, Vivid Vision in San Francisco. And they have a 3D video game, which is available, but only through optometrists in different countries. Yes. And you still do vision therapy nowadays? Good question. So I stopped a couple of years ago. Um, and luckily, and I, I should say this probably by knocking on the wood, which I, knocking on wood, which I'm doing right now, um, I haven't had a regression in my vision. I go once a year to a binocular vision optometrist to, you know, check my vision. Um, you know, but not vision therapy. I was doing it three times a week, going to the office and then doing homework. I mean, it took over my life and I, oh, I should, I should say I haven't developed 3d vision through doing vision therapy, but I have improved my depth perception. I have improved my ability to perceive details. And I think it's a very rare thing as an adult to have the ability have the chance to see life in a new way, which is what I got to do. And it's like I became a child again. I started to admire du- flying dust and, and little details and, and uh, flies that nobody else cared about. And I've gone to different optometrists, and they all basically think that there's no room forward for me, that I'm not going to make more progress, that I've, I've reached my potential. And I've come to peace with that, you know, some people might say, wow, you spent all this time and money and you don't see in 3D yet. But you know what I've realized, and I'm sure you've realized this in many aspects of your life, Dinah, that it's oftentimes it's the journey that's the most important thing and not the result. And if you know that you have done a 100% of what you, like you have done everything you possibly could do and you still haven't received your result, that's still a success because you have fulfilled your potential, you've done everything you can. The worst is when you don't try it and you have a regret or you always wonder, well, what would it be like if I could possibly see in 3D? So that was also a very good, very good lesson for me. Exactly. And have you met Susan there, Barry? I have. Um, I've met her. She was in California several years ago. We met. Um, we've co- we've communicated uh, by phone, uh, by by email mostly. You know, I dedicated my book One Eyed Princess to her, and um, I I she also has a TEDx video that she made several years ago about her journey, and um, I I'm I'm very happy that she had the courage to speak up and to to contact Dr. Oliver Sacks to, you know, go on the media go in the media and speak about this because if it weren't for her. I think many of us would not know about vision therapy, would not see the value in it. But because she's a neuroscientist trained at Princeton or Yale, we know that she's legitimate. Uh-huh. She's, she knows what she's talking about. You know, and some ophthalmologists, uh, these are eye surgeons, they write off vision therapy as quackery. Um, and it's not, I mean, in my experience, yeah. it's not quackery. Mm-hmm. And when you have somebody like Susan Berry, who's a neuroscientist, saying how it literally changed the way that she sees the world, you know that it's not quackery. Exactly. And when we started vision therapy when a guy who is now 13, he was seven at the time, and um, some professionals said to me, you know, 
the window has closed, you, you won't able to change anything. He's not, he won't be able to rewire his brain after the age of seven. And then the video of uh, Susan Berry came out and it gave me so much hope for changes which took place and the changes were amazing. But without her, <laughs> I wouldn't have known it's possible. So in your, in your son's case, what changed with his vision? Uh, oh, everything. He, yeah. was, he, he didn't have any focus. His eyes weren't aligned. Uh, the eyes basically didn't work together. So he couldn't kick mm -hmm. a ball. He couldn't, do, he couldn't swim. He couldn't do so many activities that he can nowadays. He couldn't write. That's the most important Oh, thing. no. Yes. <gasps> Yes. Wow. Yes. He was in school. Um, he started school when he was five. So he was in school uh, till he was about eight. And during that time, he couldn't write, just scribbled. And, you know, I'm sure that the school didn't see, didn't give him any hope. But I had a feeling that it's going to be okay. And today he writes beautifully. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. And does he uh, speak any other language or no, play no. music? No, no. He plays music. He plays yeah. flute. But uh, because it was so hard to get one language, I just wanted him to stick to English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, by the way, we're speaking about a TEDx video. I have a TEDx talk that I did in November in Montreal, Canada. It hasn't been published yet on YouTube, uh, but hopefully next month in February it will be uh, published. So I'll send you the link. Yes, please. Yeah. So and it took me four and a half years before I found a TEDx conference that would accept me to talk about this. So mm. the same determination that it took your son to do vision therapy and for you to believe in vision therapy, yes. um, same determination it took me to do it, it it's the same thing that it took for me to get accepted to finally do a TEDx talk. Oh, wow. So I'm looking forward to, to get the link. Yes. And it was really yes. amazing, Susanna, talking to you and inspiring me. And <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you. For, thank you for the invitation. And I'm really happy to have the opportunity to speak about this. And um, I think it's, when more of us are going to talk about this and it takes vulnerability to be yes. sure, you know, come on. I, I, one of the things I didn't mention is that when I was in the Soviet union, I was sent to a preschool for the developmentally disabled because of my, my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, as you probably could tell in the last half hour that we've been speaking, I'm not developmentally disabled. <laughs> so you can imagine how many children have been routed in the wrong direction yes. because they've been misdiagnosed or undiagnosed. And something to mention is that in, I think it was 1983, there was a study done in the United States in juvenile hall, which is the juvenile prison system. And there was a very high rate of children who, with undiagnosed binocular vision problems in juvenile hall. And if you think about it, like with your son, he wasn't able to write. Um, he wasn't able to focus. My case, well, luckily I was able to read and write, but there are many other people who have trouble with that. Imagine if you can't write, you can't read, you can't uh, be coordinated enough in school sports. Those kids who have all of those problems are most likely going to get themselves into trouble because they can't focus in school. And what happens? They get themselves into trouble and then they end up in jail because whatever, they don't know what to do. They're robbing things. Yes. They're causing havoc. And so it takes you having this broadcast. It takes me and other people, Susan Barry and others, speaking up about this because once we receive, once we get into a critical mass of 
awareness about this issue, we're going to, we're going to be changing the way the school system tests children for vision and the way pediatricians and child, childhood psychologists, you know, look at children who have uh, vision issues and diagnose people early on before they get into a lot of trouble, before they have trouble writing in school. So I think that you and I are part of a big movement and I appreciate the fact that you have made this podcast. Oh, thank you very much. Yes. All right. Well, I look forward to getting the link when it's up. Yes. this month to get a free 7-day